Imagine Manhattan without any skyscrapers. Envision New York City with thick woods, streams where streets now lie, and filled with the sounds of croaking frogs instead of honking cars. Good morning. I'm George Bodarki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. On this morning's show, we're stepping back in time to Manhattan circa 1609. They hunted black bear on Manhattan. Also today, messages from mom. How has electronic communication changed the way mothers keep in touch with their adult kids? Moms and their kids are in constant communication. I mean, a lot of moms will IM their kids at work. Glad you're with us for Cityscape. If you ever wondered what Manhattan looked like before it became a city, wonder no more. A new book called Manahata, A Natural History of New York City, gives readers a look at the borough when it was an island paradise, not an urban jungle. Eric Sanderson is the man behind the project. He's a senior ecologist at the Wildlife Conservation Society at the Bronx Zoo. Eric, welcome to Cityscape. Hey, how are you? Good. You've recreated Manhattan as it was 400 years ago. The Manhattan that greeted Henry Hudson. That's right. So uh, we wanted to try and see what Manhattan was like, not just what Henry Hudson saw, but what it would have been here, say, two hours before Henry Hudson sailed into the harbor and sort of started, got the whole party rolling that led to New York City as we know it today. How did you recreate that Manhattan? Well, it, it took a lot of work, almost 10 years. It started out by I found this map, this British headquarters map from the American Revolution that showed the original topography and watercourses and shoreline of Manhattan Island as it appeared in the 18th century. And in the 18th century, New York City was just a small town, maybe 25,000 people just at the tip of Manhattan Island. And, and the rest of the island was mostly countryside and forest and streams. And in my work at the Wildlife Conservation Society, we use maps like this to try and plan to save wildlife and wild places around the world. And so I realized if I could take this historic map and geo-reference it to the city today, actually lay it on top of the city, then we could figure out where these streams and hills and shorelines and so forth were with respect to the city grid as it is as it is today. Once we knew that, once we knew these sort of landscape fundamentals, then we could reconstruct the island literally from the ground up, from the, the rocks and the soils through the different kinds of ecological communities up to all the different wildlife species, including what people were doing on the island 400 years ago. How was it that the British military maps were so accurate considering they were developed in the 18th century? Right, right. Well, you know, it turns out that when the British were occupying New York City during the American Revolution, they had some of the best cartographers in the world at the time. And these cartographers, they didn't have GPS like we have today, but they had plane tables, they had theodolites, they they made very careful measurements. And military maps were important to them, just like military maps are important to our military today, in the sense that they help you figure out where to put your troops and where to put your fortifications and so forth. And New York City was the center of the British headquarters. It was it was the center of their war effort. Um, and then the last thing is they had eight years. So there's actually hundreds of maps of the New York City region from the American Revolution showing these features. And in some ways, the British headquarters map is the crowning achievement of all that work over an eight-year period during the Revolution. Manhattan wasn't always called Manhattan. The Lenape Indians who lived on Manhattan long before anyone else called Manhattan Manahata, which translates into Island of Many Hills, right? That's right. Yeah. So it was... It's not the Rocky Mountains, but there were a lot of low low hills. We think over 500 hills on Manhattan Island between 
you know, 10 and 20 feet high, and the highest is about 270 feet high up in Washington Heights at Fort Washington. How many of those hills still exist? You know, the ones up in northern Manhattan are still all out there, and you can still see some of the hills in, in the Bronx. But in lower Manhattan, many of them were filled during the construction of the road grid during the 19th century. But that said, the you know the water still flows underneath the ground, right? And so um, often when I'm giving talks in the city, people ask me, you know, it, you know, you show all these streams on your map, and my basement floods every winter. Is there a stream under my basement? And could there be? There could be. There could be. Although you know, you have to you have to take it with a little bit of a grain of salt, because you know water flows where water flows, right? So it used to be that streams got their water from the rainfall and it soaked into the ground, and then would come out in springs and and to create the streams. Today, most of that water gets caught on the asphalt and the pavement. It goes into the storm drains. So sometimes when you see a, a leaking basement, it could be because there's a leak in the concrete and the water's forming a stream again. But it could be because there's a water main break a street over and the water's flowing underneath the ground like it used to. Just how much water was there in Manhattan 400 years ago? Well, according to our research, there were 66 miles of stream on Manhattan, about 21 ponds, a really large freshwater pond, the Collect Pond in lower Manhattan, which was the freshwater source for the city for its first 200 years, 70 feet deep, fed by underground springs, um, renowned for its fishing, so much so that in the 1730s, they had to enact an ordinance that limited the kind of gear you could use to fish in the Collect Pond. They said no nets, just hook and line from now on. Where exactly was the Collect Pond? The Collect Pond is right where Foley Square is today. If you ever see the the lawyers walking up the steps in Law and Order, that's the New York uh, Supreme Court, and it was just on the steps of that. The New York Supreme Court would have been right on the the shoreline of the Collect Pond. And what happened to it? It got filled in. So, um, it, like I said, for you know whatever ten thousand years before Henry Hudson came, it was uh, there was a Lenape camp there, and other Native Americans lived there, and lots of plants and animals got their water out of the Collect Pond. And then New York City did as well. You know, Manhattan's an island in a tidal estuary, so you can't drink the East River, you can't drink the Harlem River, so you got to get your water, your fresh water, from somewhere, and that's they got it from the Collect Pond. And then shortly after the American Revolution, in a, an act of bad city planning, they allowed a tannery to set up shop right on the edge of the Cluck Pond. And tanneries make all these nasty chemicals, and there's guts from the animals they killed to make the hides. Anyway, and, and within 10 years, you couldn't drink out of the Cluck Pond anymore. So they, um, they decided to fill it in. They knocked, there was a hill right next to it called the Couch Hook. It was covered by shells. It meant shell, shell Mound Hill in the Dutch. They knocked it over to fill it in, and then they built over the top of it. But when they built over the top of it, they didn't fill it very well, and the land started to subside, and the vegetation they'd buried started to stink, and so it became a very lousy neighborhood. Nobody wanted to live there anymore, and so eventually it became the Five Points neighborhood, like in uh, the movie Gangs of New York. Only the poorest people could live there. And then eventually, you know, after over the course of the 19th century, there was all these different reform movements. Finally, Jacob Rees took a bunch of photographs in that area, and that led to large municipal investments. And so they cleared the slums, they cleared the tenements, and built large municipal buildings. They expanded the prison, the Tweed Courthouses nearby, the municipal court, and so forth and so on. And so today, Foley Square is a center of of the municipal government and the and the state and local government here in, in the city. Let's talk more about the Lenape Indians. Yeah. What was their way of life like? Yeah, they, they had a really great way of life. You know, they were a hunting-gathering people. They didn't live in one place all year round. They would move around depending on the seasonal resources. So they'd go down to the, the Hudson River during the spring fish runs when there would be millions and millions of fish in the Hudson River. They'd move inland to good places with soils to plant. During the, their summer, they, they were sort of small-scale horticulturalists. So they, they grew these uh, gardens of corn, beans, and squash, the Three Sisters Garden. 
they built um, houses uh, called wigwams and longhouses out of out of saplings that they would bend over to make a dome, and then they would sort of sheet them with large bark strips that they would strip off the old growth trees around them. And then in the winter, they would move in. Sometimes they would actually probably leave Manhattan because Manhattan's more wind exposed and go to warmer places in the Bronx and in Queens and in Brooklyn um, and, and spend the winters in larger groups. And they would, you know, tell stories and repair their, repair their things and get ready for the next, the next year's cycle. You know, we don't know a huge amount about their spirituality, but all the signs are is that they lived very close to the land. You know, they had to get everything they needed from Manhattan and from the waters that surrounded it. Um, and there was a lot to be had. There was the fish. There were deer. Um, they hunted black bear on Manhattan. Black bear in Manhattan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, black bear. And they, they, they liked it because, you know, it was really hard for them to get grease. And you could get grease from a bear. And they used the grease to cook and, and also to put on their skins against the mosquitoes. So there were mosquitoes, too. There were all kinds of nuts and berries and all kinds of grasses. And in my book, I talk about all the different things that they, they used on Manhattan Island. You know, they would have known the island as intimately as modern New Yorkers know the subway system, for example, right? They would have known, you know, you go up this trail and over that hill and over this stream, just the way we, we can navigate the subway system. What would they think of today's Manhattan? Well, I think they would be completely shocked, right? And we, and we shouldn't think of them as totally gone. There are Lenape people still that, that live in Oklahoma and up in Canada and Wisconsin. You know, they had, there's a very sort of sad history of how they, how they left the land. What I think is interesting in thinking about them is that they would also be shocked by how cosmopolitan we are. You know, if you lived on Manhattan, that's probably all you knew. I mean, there, were, there was communication with the Iroquois to the north and the Ohio River Valleys um, to, to, the, to the west. But, you know, they didn't know about Europe at all, right? They didn't know about Africa or Asia. You know, the, everybody you knew was of your culture and spoke your language. So in some ways, I think also their, their lives were very kind of closed in and very inward looking. And probably because there were such risks by changing things up, you know, that they couldn't take the kind of risks that sometimes we can take in modern culture. So anyway, I think that, you know, it's, it's a very interesting contrast thinking about the, say, 300 Lenape that lived on Manhattan 400 years ago and the one and a half million people that live on Manhattan today. Are there lessons to be learned from the way the Lenapes lived in Manhattan? I think so. I, you know, I... I think, you know, because they got everything out of their local environment, they, they knew it if they overused it, whereas we get everything we need from who knows where, right? From the whole world, basically, is our resource shed, if you like. Um, and so I think because of that, we don't necessarily appreciate the way we use resources and, the, and, and what it takes, actually, to sustain, sustain our lives and um, what the consequences are, therefore, because of that. But I also think there's something to be said about living in families, right, and living in these multi-generation families. I have a, I have a son, and he goes to, to school here in, in the city, and I, I wish I could be with him all the time, right, the way these Lenape parents with their kids all the time. And I wish that I had as much time outdoors. And, you know, these hunter-gatherer societies, you know, um, modern studies of them show that they don't, they don't work, you know, the way we work. They work 18, 20, 25 hours a week. You know, sometimes busier, sometimes less busy, but, but no, they would never work, you know, 80 hours a week the way, the way people in New York do today. It is interesting, though, how we are embracing at least some of the Lenape's way of life. We are, some of us are, trying to eat more locally these days. Yeah, no, I think, you know, there are these deep wisdoms that those people had to solve and that we're having to solve too, right? I mean, if you think of cities as habitat for people and if you think as of Manahata as habitat for people and other wildlife through time, 1609, 
in the American Revolution today, 400 years from now, there are these common set of problems you have to solve. You have to get food for everybody who lives there. You have to get water for everybody who lives there. You have to find shelter for everybody. You need to be able to raise your kids, and you need to have this sort of sense of meaning that's so important to people. One of the great things about being human beings is we can make choices about how we do that, right? And and we've created this economic system that actually allows a million and a half people to live on this you know thin, narrow island, and that's actually really amazing that we could do that. But we haven't necessarily appreciated what the consequences of that economic system are. And so I think those ideas are starting to finally work their way through our culture because we're seeing the consequences. And they're consequences not just that are locally, but that are regionally and, and globally as well. In addition to reimagining what Manhattan looked like 400 years ago, you also look ahead to what the borough could look like in the year 2409. Tell us about that. You know, I think it's really interesting to think as an ecologist about cities and what do cities do and what does habitat in cities do for people and for other other forms of life. And I think if you think about it that way, you can find these sort of fundamental solutions that we've had all along, like like local foods, like like power, like windmill. You know, the, the Dutch didn't have, you know, coal-fired power plants. They had windmills and they had tidal mills. And those solutions would work today as well here in New York. Um, you know, the Lorape, they got around by walking and and by, you know, using their muscles with, you know, their dugout canoes. We can use bicycles and other ways to get around. You uh, think we should implement trolley, another trolley system in New York City? Yeah. Well, you know, if you go back, um, if you go back 100 years, the l- largest population in Manhattan was in 1910. And there were 2.2 million people that lived on Manhattan. And there were hardly any cars. That was the very beginning of cars. And most of the time, people got around on streetcars. And we had this amazing streetcar system. I, I read that there, there was a corner at 42nd and 5th Avenue, and in a given day, 570 trolley cars would go by. Those kind of solutions we also can find um, and also bring back and, and readopt and, and as a way of making our city a, a better and healthier and God, you know, God would be great if it was a lot quieter place to live to, right? <laughs> That's what I think is, is, you know, if you think about human beings as a species, what's unique about our life history is that we modify our environment to fit us. Most other species have to fit into whatever environment they find. We modify the environment to fit us. But because we have these big brains, we can make choices about how we fit that environment. And I, I think finally we're getting to a point where we're making more holistic choices about how we want to how we want to fit the environment in all its aspects to meet our needs, which are legitimate, but also to think about the needs of everything else that lives on the planet. I want to get a better sense of what Manhattan was like 400 years ago. What did Times Square look like, for instance? Right, right. So according to our research, there were two streams that came down to meet at Times Square, one coming off the backside of Murray Hill when Murray Hill was a hill, and and another one coming sort of out of the woods near where uh, near Rockefeller Center is today. And that sort of area formed a wetland that you can see on the British headquarters map that conditions suggest was a a red maple swamp, might have been formed by a beaver pond, would have been good beaver habitat there. And, you know, beavers are these sort of landscape architects. They build their dams and they they back up the water and that creates ponds and streams that draw in all kinds of other wildlife and really change the, the ecology. So you would have you would have found a you know a, a sort of pond maybe five or ten acres surrounded by tall old growth woods affected by Lenape burning the the Native Americans burn the burn the forest but not big forest fires like Yellowstone but understory fires that would take out the shrubs you'd be see these really big old old growth trees 
and there would have been all kinds of wildlife. You know, it's it's hard for us to appreciate how much wildlife there is. There's a quote from the 18th century of a botanist who come to New York, and he complains about all the tree frogs. He says a man can hardly hear a man can hardly hear himself think for all the the frogs, um, you know, making all the noise in the woods. And now it's honking horns. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. Passenger pigeons in the millions, the shorebirds in the millions. I mean, you can still see hundreds of of hawks on the fall, fall migration, but you know there would have been millions and millions and millions of birds of over a thousand different species, all kinds of plants and animals on, on Manhattan Island. And of course, there is a lot of life in the waterways as well. That's right. That's right. So because we live in a tidal estuary, we we get the benefit of the freshwater fauna. So so fishes that are trying to go upstream to breed, as well as the saltwater ones. So we had a very rich uh, fish fauna. Things like alewife herring, which have recently been reintroduced to the Bronx River, would have come up the up the rivers. Um, the Great Kill, which was the stream that drained down through Times Square, was once known for its brook trout fishing, sea run brook trout on Manhattan Island. Also, you know, pumpkin seed and American eel that go out to the Sargasso Sea and come back. All these different species would have been found in our, our local waters and osprey and bald eagle, you know, preying on them. Up on the higher lands, you know, mountain lions, eastern cougar, um, wolves, deer, perhaps elk, um, all kinds of creatures. You write in the book that if Manahata existed today as it did then, it would be a national park, one that would rival Yosemite. Yeah, that's right. That's right. If it if it existed like it did um, back then, you know, it had fifty five different ecological communities, which is more communities per acre than than Yellowstone or Yosemite has, and that's because of the sort of uh, special biogeography of Manhattan. We're right at the southern end of the glaciers, and so some communities form south of the glaciers, and other communities form north of the glaciers. On the Atlantic Flyway for the birds, we get the benefit of the Gulf Stream waters, which is why the waters warm up in the summer. We have um, this freezing climate, which which knocks down some of the disease organisms and allows other things to survive. So you would have found magnolias in Manhattan as well as, as bogs in Manhattan, right? We're at this sort of biogeographic crossroads, which meant we had a very high biodiversity, a lot of ecological diversity in terms of the communities, and that meant many, many different kinds of species. Where was the forest thickest in Manhattan? You know, I think the thickness of the forest related to the um, soil quality that underlies and also the Lenape burning. And the Lenape had a trail system, which which we don't know very well. We, we have a guess of where it might have been. Um, that kind of went up the east side of Manhattan and then through Harlem. And we know that Harlem was probably a grassland because of Lenape burning. So in our simulations, it seems like the the west side of Manhattan from sort of 30th Street to 60th Street seemed to burn the least. And so that probably was the thickest, uh, densest, gnarliest old forest that you could find. They had several reasons to light fires. One is One is to clear the trails just to make it easy to get around. Another one was they would use it to hunt. They would light fires to, to scare animals toward a line of hunters. And the third is that they use fire to clear little parts of the forest where they can plant their crops, and sometimes those fires would escape. So we we adapted a modern fire model, the same kind that the Forest Service uses out west to simulate where wildfires go, and then we adapted it to the conditions on Manhattan and then ran you know, simulations of 200 years before 1609 to try and figure out where the fire might have been and how that affected the ecosystems. In addition to this book, you have other things going on. You have a walking tour, right, that you're doing? There's a museum exhibition that will be opening the Museum of the City of New York on May 19th, running over the course of the summer about Manhattan and Manhattan and how these underlying principles of diversity and density and interdependence and so on are true 400 years ago and are still true today about how the city works. And as part of that, we're doing a series of panel discussions and I'm, I'm doing leading a series of walking tours. We also have a website where you can zoom in to Manhattan, to your address in Manhattan and see what was in that block. 
and uh, and get a list of all the plants and animals that lived in the block and see what the Lenape were doing in that block. It's uh, themanahataproject.org. And we've also, um, through our website, where we've written teaching curriculum that's based on all the things we've learned that connect ecology and geography and history together. Because um, we really want the you know all the kids of New York to pick up this stuff and 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 build it into their concept of what New York City is, so that New York doesn't actually start when Henry Hudson arrives; it starts a couple hours before, right? And that couple hours before stands in for a history that's a billion years old before. The pictures in your book are absolutely amazing to see what Manhattan would have looked like. Right. I was I was very fortunate to meet up with a, a man who's a very good friend of mine now, Markley Boyer, who has a background in digital photography. And he helped me use these tools that Hollywood used to make these sort of fantastic landscapes you see in the movies, but to feed in our specific geographic data to it so that we're actually placing the trees and placing the streams and placing the hills exactly where they should be and then visualize what that's what that view looked like. And we can do that now for any place in Manhattan, any window in Manhattan, we can reconstruct what that view looked like 400 years ago and place it next to a photo of that same view today. The book is Manahata, A Natural History of New York City. Eric Sanderson, thank you so much for coming in. Yeah, thank you. Eric Sanderson is a senior ecologist at the Wildlife Conservation Society at the Bronx Zoo and the author of Manahata, A Natural History of New York City. It's out now from Abrams. Once again, you can find out more at the themanahataproject.org. You're tuned to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Good morning once again. I'm George Boldarki. Email and social networking sites have changed the way a lot of us communicate with people, including how we interact with our mothers, or perhaps more fittingly for this next segment, how our mothers communicate with us. Joining me now on the phone is Dori Shafrir. She's an editor at the New York Observer and the co-creator of PostcardsFromYoMama.com. The website publishes email, IM conversations, and text messages between mothers and their adult children. The site was the inspiration for a new book called Love Mom, Poignant, Goofy, Brilliant Messages from Home. Good morning, Dory. Hi. Your website and now the book give a revealing look into the communication between mothers and their grown-up kids. How did this all start? Well, um, about a year ago in March 2008, Jessica, my co-author, and I were instant messaging at work. And she said, my mom just sent me this hilarious email. I think you'll really like it. And she sent it to me. And not only did I think it was hilarious, but it also sounded exactly like something my mom would send me. Um, So I sent her another email. The one from my mom was about the actress Carrie Russell. Um, And then about an hour later, we were like, oh, we should just put these up on a website and ask our friends to send in stuff from their moms. I bet they have some funny stuff from their moms. So that was just sort of how it, it was very kind of quick and organic, I guess. Did it ever cross your mind what your mom might think about that? Yeah. And in fact, I was nervous about telling her about it for about a week. I held off, especially because in the first week I'd put up several of her more uh, hilarious missives. And so I waited a little while before telling her. And then I remember I called her at work and told her and, you know, told her the URL and she went to it and she just starts laughing hysterically and you know she thought it was hilarious um, right away and she was looking for the emails of hers that I put up and in fact she thought that a couple of the emails um, that weren't from her were actually from her so I was like you just proved my point about 
emails from mom sounding the same. But the end result with your mom is that she does not email you or text you as much, right? It's true. Well, she doesn't, she doesn't know how to text. So she never texted, um, but she doesn't email me as much. She does, she certainly doesn't email me the sort of long, flowery missives um, that she might have used to. There are a lot of entries in your book, and I'm sure on your website, that show that some moms just struggle with new technology. Yes. You know, I have this theory that a lot of moms have a sort of internal threshold for how much technology they're willing to learn, like... You know, some moms, it's like, okay, they'll do instant messenger, but they won't text. Or some moms will text, but they won't do video chat. Or, you know, they, they just, they kind of reach this point where they're like, enough, you know. And my mom certainly reached that. She will, she will receive and read text messages, but she won't send them. I must say I was floored when I received a friend invite on my Facebook page from my mom. Yeah, my mom is on Facebook now, too, and um, she's been known to comment on my status updates and post things on my wall occasionally. Although, in order for her to figure out how to do that, she had to call my brother on the phone and have him walk her through it. So, How do you think technology has changed the relationship moms have with their adult kids? Well, I actually do think it's brought them closer. I mean, um, we relate this anecdote in the intro of the book about my mom's relationship with her mother and her parents. Um, when she was in college, you know, they would call at a specific time every Sunday. There was only one phone on the hall of her dorm, and she had to be sort of around and waiting. And, the, you know, long distance was expensive. And so the, she likes to say the phone call went like this. Hi, how are you? Did you have a good week? Okay, talk to you next week. That was it. That was the extent of their communication for the whole week. Um, and now, you know, moms will email their kids at the drop of a hat. You know, we, it's clear from the emails that we get that moms and their kids are in constant communication. I mean, a lot of moms will IM their kids at work. My mom does not IM. The book separates messages from moms into various themes. One of them is sex. Yes. How open are moms with their kids on that subject? Well, this is something that I was actually quite surprised about. And, you know... I think maybe there's even somewhat of a generation gap. I'm a, you know, I'm a few years out of college, and it seems like the kids who are either in college or just out of college have a much more open relationship about sex with their moms than I do, or maybe it's just my mom. I don't know. Um, but, I mean, we're talking, like, borderline graphic here. It, it's sort of, and from both sides, like, you know, moms discussing their sex lives with their with their husbands, you know, with their adult kids, moms talking about their, you know, if the mom is divorced, talking about their boyfriends with their kids, and then asking about their kids' sex lives, saying things like, oh, you're staying at the house, you know, this week, guess I'll have to clean the, you know, clean the sheets afterwards, you know, all these, like, sex-related jokes and stuff about STDs that I just, I would never broach those subjects with my mother. My mom, I can tell you, falls into the worrier category. Oh. There's no question about that. I actually pulled out some emails from my mom to share with you oh, awesome. and our <laughs> listeners. Here's one. The subject line, by the way, is simply George. Okay. She writes in the body of this email. Hi, George. Didn't get my wake-up call this morning. I typically call my mom on my way to work just to check in with her. How are you doing today? Didn't hear you on the radio. Heard there was an accident on the Bronx River South this morning. Oh, Hope it didn't affect you. Your favorite listener. That's how she refers to herself because she listens to me all the time. <laughs> wow. Yeah. 
Yeah. That's pretty good. Um, one of my favorite ones from the book is it goes something like, Sweetie, please call us right away. We haven't heard from you since Monday night when you called to say you ate moldy bread. And we've been getting so many emails now about swine flu. Oh, I'm sure. Mom's very worried about the swine flu. It appears that moms do fall into certain types. Like I said, my mom tends to be the worrier. Mm-hmm. Some moms are passive-aggressive. Yes. Some moms, you know, there there's a lot of guilt expressed by these moms, and some of them will do it in a, in a very passive-aggressive way. Any examples of that? There's one in the book that goes something like, I miss you. Um, I hope when you and Jeff decide to settle down, it's here in Chicago, um, you know, something about it would be nice for the baby, not that I'm putting any pressure on you. Some moms are just plain all-out aggressive. There was <laughs> one mom in the book who, here's the subject line, hi, I want grandchildren. Oh, yeah. That's also one of my favorites because it's just so, I mean, she's she's not mincing any words there. The funny thing is that you would think some moms would be upset about this, but when you held your book party mm-hmm. for the launch of your book, moms showed up and they love it. Yeah, we I think we had about 40 moms from the book and then other um, friends of ours who brought their moms. And the greatest thing was the moms were all signing each other's books like, like they were yearbooks, like they were all signing on the pages where their emails had appeared and they didn't know each other and they were all just talking to each other and bonding. One mom hadn't been to New York in 20 years because she's afraid of flying and she took a train from Wisconsin for 17 hours to come to our book party. You know, I think a lot of these moms thought that they were sort of alone in this, that they were the only ones sending the nagging or the worrying or the passive-aggressive emails, and lo and behold, they're discovering that there's a lot of people who can sympathize with exactly what they're going through. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us. Oh, thank you. Send her a bunch of roses Mom loves roses Make it an extra large bouquet Dory Shafrir is the co-creator of PostcardsFromYoMama.com and the spin-off book, Love Mom, Poignant, Goofy, Brilliant Messages from Home. It's published by Hyperion. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Borarki. My thanks to producer Michal Niria. To my mom and every mom listening, happy Mother's Day. Maybe a few caresses, best expresses, love on Mother's Day. And if you're too far away to be there on her day, call her up, she'll be home. When she answers the ring, you'll be proud as a king with a queen on the phone.